Hello and welcome to Yeah Podcast, yet another Final Fantasy podcast. The podcast where I go through each Final Fantasy game and I have just finished Final Fantasy 3. So this is season 3 outro. I should really come up with some cool sounds to put between all the different sections of this thing, but one day, one day. My my PC machine is still down, so I can't access Ableton to compose a new intro. Well, that was back in well, the, the first episode of Final Fantasy 2, Season 2, just came out. So hopefully we'll have a new intro and outro at this point. That'd be cool. So let's talk about Final Fantasy 3. I will be talking about spoilers and stuff. So if you haven't played Final Fantasy 3 and you don't want any spoilers, I would say get out right now. I'm going to go th- through the story and everything else. So this game came out in 1990. It came out, I believe, a year and a half after Final Fantasy 2. So it's still like on the heels of the last game. This is a pretty like good cadence. Final Fantasy 1, year later Final Fantasy 2, a little over a year later Final Fantasy 3. We're still on the Famicom. The Final Fantasy 3 game stayed in Japan and never made it out in its NES Famicom uh, state. It was remade in 2000. 2000- seven i believe or 2006 let me double check in 2006 for the nintendo ds as a 3d game so it most of the functionality of the game remained most of the story remained uh it was basically like a reskinned nes game and this is actually one of my favorite types of remakes is when you keep the original game as much as possible fix bugs provide some quality of life improvements, but keep everything else the same. So that's kind of what happened with the DS remake. And that's the game that I played uh, for the past however long throughout this season. I played, well, I didn't play the DS remake. I made the, I played the PC remake that came a, came out in 2014, but it's essentially a port of the DS remake. So that's just something to keep in mind. If somebody says, hey, I played the DS remake, the PSP version, or the Steam version, they're all essentially the same game with some small varying differences. The game is supposed to be like a mix of Final Fantasy 1 and 2. So in Final Fantasy 1, you could create your own party from scratch, name them whatever you wanted to name them, give them whatever class uh, classes you wanted to, build them however you wanted to build them. And then you went out into the world kind of doing good deeds and slowly finding all of the crystals that you, you know, you defeated the fiends and you slowly found all the different crystals until you found the big baddie and you closed the loop. In Final Fantasy 2, there were no crystals. This time around, you were fighting against an evil emperor who ended up being like a big baddie who wasn't the evil emperor and um, you defeated him. But in that game, in Final Fantasy 2, you have pre-made characters with their names you can change the names, but with their own names, and they advance, or I guess they they improve as you go by doing the actions that they want to improve. So if you want to improve your strength, you need to keep attacking physically. If you want to improve your HP, you need to let your HP drop down below half. It's like a weird thing, but that's that's kind of the system it had. Now in Final Fantasy III, you kind of get a mix of all of this. You're dealing with crystals once again. You have the four warriors of light once again. You have a stable party of four people 
once again. Uh, and all of these kind of come from all these different games. You have regular classes, kind of regular classes like you did in Final Fantasy 1, but you can switch classes. They're called jobs now. You can s- switch to jobs as you go through the game. Uh, and kind of like in Final Fantasy 2, I guess, you have, well, you have a wider selection of classes, first of all, but you kind of like advance your, you advance your HP based on whatever job you choose, I think, and you advance your job. And as you advance your, as, as you advance your job, you also advance your regular stats as well. So it's kind of a mix of all these different, these two first games. And then it is a really, good game. It is somewhat story heavy. So in the original game, you started out as an onion knight, which was supposed to be like a poor, poor person, I guess, like a poor child or whatever, or like a poor knight, somebody who didn't know what they need to do. They didn't have a job and they were poor. I think that's what it meant, at least according to one of the YouTube videos I watched. And uh, you slowly kind of discover the story of the game. I'm going to be primarily talking about the remake since that's what I played. So the, the game actually starts out with your main character, Luneth, falling down into a cave. Luneth finds the air crystal. So all the way at the beginning of the game, you find the first crystal. The first crystal imbues you with special power and tells you to find other light warriors. You find quickly find the other light warriors. Um, Ark is one of them who's like an orphan from your village. You find Refia. Refia is a smith. She's from a neighboring village and she comes to join you. She or she doesn't want to be a smith. Her dad is a smith and she's supposed to become a smith. Then you find out, find Ingus, who's like a knight. Well, technically a warrior job, huh? But well, in my class makeup at least. But he was a he was a knight who was in love with the princess of his um, kingdom, which is the princess Sarah. I think it's Princess Sarah. Yeah. And so you find all these different characters. You see the, you find the air crystal again, and then it's kind of like you're, it's time to, time to go explore the world. You explore the world, but not so much the characters. Now, the remakes of these games had this beautiful intro HD cutscene, just amazing. That makes it seem like all the different characters, the main characters are going to interact in these very complex ways that there's going to be this really interesting action surrounding the the main characters that are going to be riding on chocobos together. None of that happens. I think the cutscenes made the game seem way different than it was. And actually, I would say like back in the day, I mean, they still do it, but back in the day, especially in the 2000s and the late 90s, a lot of the cutscenes were geared toward you know, this is how you we want you to feel like during the game rather than what the game is. So obviously the graphics are way different, but also there are just so many differences. Anyways, so you find all of your heroes and then it's your time to traipse around the world. And, you know, this is... It reminds me of Final Fantasy 1 where you're just kind of aimlessly going around trying to figure out what the next thing you need to do is. Uh, you quickly meet Sid, which is, you know, who is a, um, an airship designer, just like in all the previous games and all the future games, I guess. Sid gives you a ship. Then you find more ships. There are actually a lot of airships in this game. Uh, yeah. So as you go through the story, you end up finding, uh, coming across, I guess, all these different entities that are ruling the world. 
you find King Alice, which is like who's like a good king, but he was kidnapped by a hind who has like this floating fortress above a desert. You find a chocobo forest and you can run around the entire continent and you find out that you're on a floating continent. So this is kind of an interesting twist in this game that I was not expecting whatsoever. As you defeat various evils in, in the area um, and as you just you know do your thing you will eventually realize that your main world the overworld map is actually just an island so it's a floating continent or floating island in a much bigger world and that bigger world has been thrown into darkness by zande zand sandy zanda zanda I think it's Xanda. So I watched a bunch of these YouTube videos trying to get the pronunciations right. Xanda is one of them that I got wrong throughout the entire Final Fantasy, like the, the entire season. Yay. So you find out about Xanda, you find out that Xanda put the world into darkness, and you kind of saw that in the cutscene. And so I thought that we'd see what happened to the floating continent, why it's floating now. Um, you, you know, I figured we'd run into, like, learn more of this backstory of of the continent creation, who you're supposed to be as these orphans. You don't, you, you, you just, you don't. You'll eventually make it off of the, oh, you'll eventually find the fire crystal, which is the last, so the air crystal and the fire crystal were both on this continent. You have to fight like a demon thing to get to the fire crystal. And that should seem very familiar. All of the crystals being kind of guarded by these monsters. The wind crystal or the air crystal, the first one was actually uh, guarded by a land turtle, which was your first boss. Not a, not a huge deal of a boss, but an interesting one. Wow, this is a lot of story to cover. So once you once you leave the continent and see the entire world in darkness, you can actually sail on the darkness as if it was the ocean. It's a really weird thing. You have a ship, an airship that can fly, that can also sail the seas, so you're able to do both. You restore the water crystal, and by restoring the water crystal, you make all of the darkness go away. And that's when the next part of the story starts. You find a brand new overworld map that is huge, as big as the original one. Uh, in in that overworld map, you again traipse around the, you know, you you make your way across the continents, across the different islands. You finish various quests with another king. And was this King Alice in this? The King Alice was in this one. I I got them confused. Yeah, King Alice is in the overworld, not on the floating not on the floating continent yeah so on the main world that's where you meet king alice you help stop a civil war uh, you visit some ancient stuff somewhere and eventually you'll get a brand new ship the invincible which can scale mountains or it can fly above mountains um, and this is a really cool ship and it's a huge part of this game in that you can go into the ship and you can sleep inside the inside of the ship you can buy stuff it's like a it's a floating fortress that's just for you a floating town with an inn essentially because you can sleep on the beds uh, to regain your hp and mp you have a shop with all the different things you might want and and other stuff too uh, around this point you find you find out about doga not be, not during the invincible but before the invincible actually so once you recover you uncover the darkness you'll eventually find a magician named doga doga is a an apprentice of a bigger magician whose name is noah before noah died he imbued these special powers on his apprentices Z zande 
Zande, Zanda, Zanda, who put the world into darkness, put it into the darkness, you find out, because Noah decided that it would be a wonderful gift to make Zanda mortal. So Zanda was mortal, and Zanda didn't want to be mortal, so Zanda decided to stop the flow of time so that he would never die, nor would anybody else, and nothing would happen. You then find out that Doga is the other apprentice, and Doga was made to be really a really powerful magician. So powerful that, and I wish I had this verified, um, that he imprisoned the Leviathan, which was in the second game as well, but the Leviathan here is different, and the dragon uh, Bahamut. Now, I've been saying Bahamut, Bahamut the entire season i apologize i just didn't know how to pronounce it that's how much of a blind play this is like i did not e- i don't even pronounce these names right so bahamut you know he imprisoned bahamut as well there was a third apprentice une uh and une was was an apprentice that got the gift of being able to rule the dream world so une is une is actually asleep for thousands of or for however long so une is is asleep for however long the darkness lasted i think it was only 10 years for some reason i thought it was like hundreds of thousands of years or something but it was only 10 years so it's a i don't know that's a that's a weird part i hope i'm wrong i believe i do believe it said only 10 years you have to wake up une which you do by getting noah's harp from like whatever a sunken shrine i guess uh and both une and doga uh, want to fight you why do they want to when do they want to fight yeah they want to fight you so that they can die and they can help you unlock the um unlock the the crystal tower where zande is 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 hiding because zande wants to put the world back into darkness again uh, before that happens you you have to get like the the earth crystal i think not the earth crystal the fang of earth yeah that's an, that's another thing so these games have these fangs and the fangs are like these items that allow you to go through these magical protective barriers to get to the crystal tower so you get the fang fang of earth you go to see doga and une and doga and une fight you and they want you to kill them so you have to kill them even though they're your friends at this point and once you kill them their energy uh, powers up these keys that are important to use in the crystal tower so you make your way to the crystal tower this game is long i am telling you this game is long you make your way to the crystal tower you have to go through an ancient's maze and reactivate the earth crystal that's the last crystal you need to you need it to um, reactivate once you make it through the ancient's maze you make it to the crystal tower there you can use these special keys that une and doga gave you and the special keys uh, unlock a way to eureka Eureka is like a forbidden land of these super powerful weapons that you'll need against Zande. Zande. Zanda. Zanda. I'm not getting it right. Wow, so much stuff. So eventually you'll make your way all the way down through the Crystal of Tower. You find Zanda, the ultimate evil, except he's not the ultimate evil. He was manipulated by the Cloud of Darkness. Another kind of demon-esque you know character that has been controlling everything from behind, from behind the curtain. Just like in the first one, where the knight that you were fighting ended up being chaos itself, right? Or in the second one, where the emperor ended up being the emperor of demons, or the king of demons, or whatever. So in this game, Cloud of Darkness, you eventually make it to the world of darkness to fight the Cloud of Darkness, defeat him, end of game. That was the best recap I could do. Summary, get a bunch of light warriors, restore the crystals, restore the fangs of fangs, 
fights the first baddie and then fight the ultimate baddie. That I think is like the formula for every Final Fantasy game. Except number two, right? Because number two didn't have any crystals. This was an exhausting game. This was a long game. There's a lot of story to cover that I haven't covered in anything that I just said. A lot of subplots, subplots that I don't even remember anymore. And actually that's one of the things that people have complained about this game that you have these story beats you go from one thing to another without really any meaning you help these vikings along the way and it doesn't make a difference that you do that you meet these um like mini people like people that they look like fairies or gnomes or something i think they're gnomes they might be gnomes they're these tiny little people that have these tiny little villages in in the grass and you shrink down to meet them nothing ever really comes out of that you save this town from being destroyed by these evil warriors or whatever nothing happens with that either there's a floating fortress that made out of a tree i guess and it goes into its piece but once you once you defeat the main villain that made the fortress fly around but nothing really happens with that either uh the the big points the big highlights of the game really are just the crystals but the crystals they don't really feel like they're the ultimate goal ever like you the the fire crystal the only reason you needed to, you reactivate the fire crystal is because a demon that stole something from the dwarves stole something from them and you needed to get it back right the water crystal you restored because you needed some darkness to disappear so you can go see the rest of the land it felt very disjointed the entire game i'm i i hate to say that but that is that is the case let's talk about the gameplay of this game i think we got the story i think we can all understand that the story is pretty good it really does feel like an nes game with a different skin in that the story is pretty simple uh the story you know isn't really the focus i mean it's it's more story driven than the first one a little less story driven than the second one but in a good way but it's still not like a, a robust story which is what i've heard final fantasy 4 is more about that final fantasy 4 is like the first very story driven beautifully story driven game in the series but yeah let's talk about the gameplay um we talked i talked about the job system a little bit in that and, and let me dive more into that. So with the job system, it meant that you can recreate your party along the way. There are There is some friction to changing jobs, and as I think there should be. If you change your job, it'll take several battles for your character to really start gaining stats in that class or in that job. If you do switch jobs, you lose a lot of strength that you build up when you leveled up a specific job. Um, those are the two main things to mention as far as like friction there but there are other things that are important to mention there are like class upgrades so if you have a white mage the class upgrade for that is devout and the class upgrade for that is sage that's the ultimate white mage essentially but nobody really tells you about that which is i think the, the most problematic thing is that none of the classes have any descriptions or information about it i didn't know that devout was an upgraded white mage until literally the last boss in the entire game the cloud of darkness so I was playing with a white mage, then I found out that devout is more powerful than the white mage. So I started leveling up the devout, and at some point I read that, hey, and sage is the most powerful version of that. And so I ended up having to like lose a lot of progress, and it, and it sucks that there are no descriptions for these classes. That one, of, some of them are essentially upgrades of the previous classes. Some of them are more powerful, or what their attacks do. 
Um, the upside is that, yeah, my end party was very di was very different from my beginning party. I started with a monk for Luneth, which is one of the main characters. I made that monk into a dragoon, which is like a dragon rider from the Final Fantasy II, like the same as Final Fantasy II, strong with a spear and had a special ability to jump, uh, which meant it jumped into the air and next turn it would attack with a really heavy attack. When it jumps into the air, when the character jumps into the air, they can't be attacked. And eventually that character became a Viking, which a Viking has the ability to, uh, to provoke the enemy so that the enemy would only attack them. And the Viking has a really high defense and lots of health. You do not get this class by doing anything with the Vikings, which was a disappointment. It's not like you collect these, right? Uh, like my other character, Ingus, Ingus started out as a warrior, which is like a knight. And then he became my geomancer, which is like this special kind of magician that uses the element, the, the world around him uh, to cast a spell. So like if you're out in the desert, I believe it's like a quake attack or something like that. If you're out in the forest, it might be like a wind attack, uh, just things like that. So use the environment. And then eventually uh, he became a, he was a dragoon for a little while, but he eventually became my dark knight. Dark Knight is also another class that you don't, or another job that you don't get from like the Dark Knight village, because there is a village of just Dark Knights. Um, you get it from, from activating a crystal. That's what happens with all these jobs. But it was nice to have these changes in classes. I mean, you know, Ingus operated as a magic user for some part of the game for me. Um, then I had Ark. Ark was a white mage that became a red mage, a red mage having the ability to, you know, cast white and black magic and attack with a physical attack. That was a nice kind of change of pace. I didn't need as much healing at that point. So it was nice to have both somebody who could do low level healing, but also inflict some damage. Eventually I changed the character to a bard. A bard uses different weapons and switches between weapons and their special ability is to sing with those weapons and provide a buff or health or a low level attack against the enemy. So I used the bard for quite a while because it was free party wide healing every single turn. Eventually that character became that devout and then a sage because I just needed high level white magic to cast against the cloud of darkness. Lastly, Refia started out as a black mage, I believe, and for some time became an evoker, which is somebody who summons monsters, and then a summoner, which is like an upgrade to the summon summoner. So as a summoner, she was able to cast some awesome summons, and that's all they do. That's the only thing that they can do during a battle, really, is to cast these amazing summons. So whereas I'm like used to, let's say, Final Fantasy VII, where I, where I first encountered su summons, I think, so in Final Fantasy VII, you cast the summon like a couple times and it drains your MP or something. And I can you only cast once a turn? Or was that a different game? I think that was a different game. Hmm. Oh, well. So yeah, um, this character just summons another being every single turn to cast some kind of an attack. It's, it's fun. It's awesome. So it was great to have like these different party changes. There are some party changes that are required by the game um, or essentially required you fight against this flying monster at one point, And if you don't run at least one dragoon or a full party of dragoons, you are not going to be able to beat that enemy 
like you're gonna have to do a lot of grinding to beat that enemy there was another time where you cast like a mini on all your characters and your all your characters are minified so you can go through this cave and when you're minified you can't do much physical damage so you might want to transform all of your characters to some kind of spellcasters you have the same situation with toad i believe and yeah so the job system is fantastic i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed the fact that my end party had completely different dynamics from the my beginning party my beginning party was lots of attack and lots of healing my end party was um well before cloud of darkness let's just say was a summoner with this hardcore attacking power i had the sage who could heal but uh, most of the time he he, he didn't need to heal he could use an elder staff to heal without using any mp but he could also use dark magic which is what a sage can do then i had my dark knight and my dark knight was a powerhouse and my viking was a meat shield that provoked the enemy i literally had that character running with two shields at most times because the enemy would use their high power attacks to inflict like zero or one damage to the viking and that was very different from my setup all the way at the beginning of the game or in the middle of the game where I had a Dragoon that did a massive amount of damage before I switched him out to be a Viking. Like, so cool. The next uh, aspect of the, the gameplay that is a little bit different than the previous games is the MP charge system. So I think this was in the first Final Fantasy game before the remake. You, didn't ha you don't have MP in this game. You have a specific number of charges of different levels of spells. So you might have 20 charges of level 1 spell interestingly depending on your job that could mean completely something different if you're a summoner your only level one summon is a chocobo escape summon so you might have 52 charges of being able to run away <laughs> whereas a white mage or a sage will have 52 charges of cure which can heal um, an, an enormous amount of health uh, you could also be you know 52 charges of black mage attacking with like a blizzard attack and you know making some damage to the enemies so yeah it's the same mp and if you cha change a class system or jobs as you're doing this you carry over whatever mp you had so if you're a white mage and you change it to a black mage you might take away some of your mp because you know your black mage might not have th that many charges but you have at most the amount of charges your character can have but at least the amount of uh, charges your previous class still had left if that makes sense so if you had five charges left as a white mage if you switch to a black mage you should still have those five charges unless you're not high enough of a level to have five charges i hope that makes sense yeah um next we also get summons in this game this is the first game that has to have to have summons officially i've mentioned before that in the second final fantasy game you could use the wyvern the dragon um from your item slot to cast a spell that to me feels like the first semi summon idea where you have access to some kind of a powerful being to cast a spell that yeah that, that, that happens here as an evoker you get a choice of two different spells that get randomly selected or two different attacks and it's usually like a a regular attack that does damage and like a buff so hitra summon with ifrit which ifrit may shows up in like every single game after this um ifrit's main attack i think is like hellfire 
which does a lot of damage to an enemy. And the other one is like healing light. So it will either heal your entire party with like 3000 HP per character heal or attack the enemy. As a summoner, you get a third attack, which seems to be guaranteed to always be the third attack. And I, in Ifrit's situation, I think that's, I don't remember, it was Hellfire and something else. Yeah, so you get a different attack that is way more devastating. And every single character, every single summon has three attacks that are available in this way. Randomized as an evoker and as a summoner, high level summoner, you should be using only their ultimate attacks. I thought it was a randomized, but I, I can't tell if it is or not. Next thing that they kind of change is that in Final Fantasy II, they have this cool idea that you have you have a three-party system and you get a fourth character that helps move the story along in your party. And uh, that character does is a different class and does all kinds of different damage. And it's just kind of interesting to have a difference in the, the game mechanics, right? Because when you had Min Wu in Final Fantasy II, you had a really powerful white mage. So the rest of your characters didn't have to heal. Unfortunately, they didn't have a job system, so I don't think it worked out really well. In Final Fantasy III, well, it did, because I, I enjoyed playing that game. In Final Fantasy III, you get a fifth character, but they're not an official member of the party. They walk around with you, you can actually talk to them, and they will tell you something something quest-related, so you know where to go next, and sometimes provide some kind of an, kind of an insight in key locations or after key events. Um, and they attack occasionally. They'll attack all kinds of different attacks. You can't really rely on them attacking, uh, but it's really cool that they sometimes step in to do damage. I had Dash, which is one of the characters that accompanies you, accompany me on a boss attack. So I was fighting a boss, and Dash would occasionally step in and provide a fifth attack on my turn. So I would have not only the four attacks of my characters but a fifth attack from dash and that was kind of fun i think that was a cool mechanic that they introduced in this game lastly i think one of the more important parts to mention in in the gameplay section would be the onion knight so in the original the onion knight was like an um that was your default job in this game it's an unlockable special cl class in the in the remake it's an unlockable special job the onion knight can use any kind of armor they can use any kind of spell. They can use, they can do anything and everything that they want to do. They kind of suck. They have, they're very low level, very low strength, very low everything until way, way later in the game when you get to level 90 to 99 in the job. And that is completely normal and doable. I had like two characters level 99, um, at the end of the game and, and I could have had more than two. I had like a couple of their jobs were almost level 99 as well. So you, once you get to that point, the onion can also, onion knight can also wear onion armor and onion weapons and they're absolutely OP. They can destroy like everything. In the remake, you unlock them through this like letter side quest system. Uh, I'm not going to go over that much because I don't think it's super important, but yeah, you, you can become the onion knight and it's kind of a really cool idea that you have this like, I don't know, name of a job that doesn't sound like it's very strong to be this like really ultimate class job that you can have. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's awesome that they brought that. I should, I guess, talk about the letter system. So real quick, you can get letters from different characters for your characters. 
in the DS system, it was an online connectivity thing. Since then, it's more like a you complete 50% of your uh, bestiary. That means that you get a letter. Great. Uh, once you get the letter, um, you will have some of the characters that you've met along the way ask you to do things like save children from a cave, and you unlock the Onion Knight job this way. You'll eventually uh, find like a smith, a traveling master smith that will forge the ultimate weapon for you and there's also like an ultimate cave that has extremely powerful enemies and that's where the onion armor and whatever is located at so just a, like a little side side bit so bringing this back around let me just talk about my experience with this game and what i thought about it i think one of the coolest things about this game has been the floating continent concept i really thought that i had conquered the entire world or you know been like halfway through the difficult parts of this game and then an entire world is open to me that was a really awesome plot twist i enjoyed that i enjoyed all the different ships that you got to fly in this game they were all different in some way you had a ship that could sail on the ocean but that could also fly you had a ship that could fly above the ocean not sail but it could dive below the ocean and open a brand new world map of the underworld underwater world that had like two different caves and, and um, like a couple more locations. You had the invincible ship, which is, I think everybody's been saying it is the best ship in the entire game series in the entire final fantasy series and the invincible ship. The cool thing about it was just like the fact that it had this interior that allowed you to sleep, to park somewhere and grind essentially. The ship didn't need to land, so you had to be above a forest or above something just so that you could jump out of the ship, essentially. Um, there are some other things. Um, the end of the game was super grindy. So the Crystal Tower, I'm downplaying how long the Crystal Tower and Ancient, Ancient's Maze was. It was incredibly frustrating with how long it was, how little breaks you got throughout the gameplay, how difficult it was and how much grinding you had to do. The game basically slowed to a crawl at the end of the game. Imagine going through this game, breezing through the story, having fun time, enjoying the gameplay, enjoying the difficulty, enjoying the ease or whatever, doing a little bit of grinding here and there, and then stopping, coming to a complete halt because the game is just incredibly frustratingly difficult. The one thing that you can do to make it easier, especially on the Steam version, is that if you if you do a quick save and as soon as and and load the game back up and you do something, as long as you don't die, you can actually force quit the game and come back and play from that quick save checkpoint. I did that a bunch and it made the end of the game easier. I highly recommend it if this is something that you can do, if this is an option for you, force quitting and coming back to the quick save you might want to test it out and not rely on it very heavily, but you might want to test it out that it works in your system. It works for me and it made the end of the game much, much easier. Uh, the other thing to mention is that there are no Phoenix Downs or Elixirs that you can buy. The game has a different set of mechanics. There are no tents, there are no cottages. If you want to redo, rebuild your health and MP and everything, you have to find a town. You get like 20 Phoenix Downs through the, throughout the course of the entire game, essentially. Um, you will find that you don't need them as often. The game doesn't rely on these super long dungeons like Final Fantasy II did. The dungeons are much more simpler and they're easier to bear through and you shouldn't be using Phoenix Downs very often. Same thing with Elixirs, but it sucks that none of these were available to buy. 
The one th- thing that one other thing that they added that was awesome in this game has been have been secret passages. So this game heavily relies on going walking up against the wall and basically walking through the emptiness of space through a secret passage to an area that has like special weapons and items. That that exploration aspect of this game was really really cool. This was somewhat introduced in Final Fantasy 2 where you had places you could walk through and it was more like a shortcut or maybe it was just like a secret entryway to an area that you already saw but in this game specifically you can walk up against the wall without knowing that it will lead you somewhere so you have to kind of like watch out for clues that there might be some secret hidden somewhere so much to cover this is a big game I had fun. I think there was a little bit too much grinding, especially at the end. If I wasn't doing this for this podcast, I probably would have gotten stuck on the last level and just abandoned the game and went to play something else, to be honest. I will say that the remake, you sh- if you're going to play this game, play the remake. There are a lot of things that are fixed and the graphics are really nice. The Famicom version is not the official version. There's no official English version. So you're going to be playing a fan translation. And uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's it. That's it. That's the end of this game. I'm done. This was a long journey. This was the longest game yet. Way better than Final Fantasy 2. I can still see why people prefer Final Fantasy 1. There's a certain charm to it, but especially since it doesn't have this incredibly frustrating ending, but still, yeah. Story-wise, this was much more involved. I wish it was even more involved. I know we're going to see that in the next game, so I'm, I'm, I'm psyched to start Final Fantasy IV. I do need to take a break, otherwise I'm going to burn out playing these games. Anyway, thank you for listening. You can find me on Twitter, on twitter.com slash yaffpodcast, Y-A-F-F podcast. I hope you listen to the next episode when I, when I introduce Final Fantasy IV.